Uh, Acts chapter 25, are you all there? Acts chapter 25, are you all there? All right. Uh, Let's stand together while I read God's Word. And it says, Now three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush, uh, planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let, him bring, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, not against Caesar Have I committed any offense? But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid out Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed." Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, 
And they enter the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to live, no, uh, uh, no longer live, any, uh, not live any longer. Sorry, verse 25. But I found that he had not done, done uh, that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write about my lord. Uh, to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now we're going to stop right there in the book of Acts, and I want to preach to you on this chapter under the theme, Don't unsay with your life. Don't unsay with your life. I know that's a strange phrase, but that is the title of my message. Don't unsay with your life. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You have given us this Word. We got, God, we, we recognize that even though this is a narrative passage about Paul's life and about a trial, that this is still Your Word for us today. And that it has, it has the power to shape us, to convict us, to point us to Jesus. And so I pray that it would do just that. Use me, God, your servant. I pray that I would only say things that are helpful, that I would speak your word, not my own ideas. I pray, God, for your people, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that would receive this message. Shape us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a, with a parable of sorts, a story. A man wrote an article, and in the article he explained how over 30 grams of sugar each day dangerously places one at risk of heart disease, obesity, diabetes, and even cancer. His article went viral. He was invited on multiple podcasts, many news shows, even Oprah featured his work. Eventually, this man wrote a New York Times bestseller, and it created a whole movement of people who began consuming less than 30 grams of sugar a day. Until one day, a journalist saw this man walking out of Dunkin' Donuts with a dozen donuts in his hand and a caramel-glazed, chocolate-drizzled, mochi latticino. <laughs> and the journalists followed the man and watched him consume all 12 of those donuts and this large mochi latticino. Uh, well... News broke. He was defamed. His book was discredited. His articles were mocked. His life was in shambles. And the movement stopped. And people forgot about the man and went back to their sugar. 
the lesson the world learned was this. The way one lives their life must not be detached from the words that come out of their mouth. The way one lives their life must not be detached from the words that come out of their mouth. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 24, the chapter just before this one, and I titled that sermon, Courageous Proclamation. And I I finished my sermon last week, if you remember, with a quote from Richard Baxter in which he said, don't unsay with your life what you have said with your tongue. I am concerned that too often Christians live like this 30 grams of sugar man. That we have a message that we share with our words, but so often we unsay that very message with our life. Meaning the witness of our life doesn't always match the witness of our words. One reason that you might lack power in your evangelism is... According to Acts chapter 25, what we looked at at last week, it could be boldness. It might be that you are just not courageous enough in sharing the whole message of the gospel, calling people to invite, or uh, uh, inviting people to come and respond to Jesus. It could be boldness. But another reason that you might lack power in your evangelism is because you don't live a life above reproach. Courage is not your problem. Words are not your problem. Boldness in the message is not your problem. The problem is that your life doesn't match the gospel message that you preach. Now Paul, between chapter 24 and chapter 25, has been in jail for two years. For what? Nothing. False charges. Governor Felix who, who was a spineless leader that would rather appease the Jews than release Paul. Governor Felix, who we, we discover, who, who visits Paul uh, in verses 24 through 27, visits Paul regularly, hoping to get some money from him. Looking for a bribe. And Paul sits for two years. Now after two years is up, There's a new emperor in Rome. His name, Nero. And Nero gets rid of Felix and puts a new governor in place, and his name is Festus, and he becomes one of the main characters of chapter 25. So for that reason, everybody say, Festus. Festus. He's in Jerusalem. As soon as he arrives, he visits Jerusalem. New leader. Checking out his people that he's, that, he, that he's over. What he discovers in Jerusalem is all, this, this whole story about Paul. Well, evidently Felix didn't tell him about it. He gets down to Jerusalem and the, the leaders of Jerusalem come to him and they're like, oh man, there's this guy named Paul who's locked up in Caesarea and they give him all the backstory. And they give him all the charges that they have against him. In verse 3 what we see is that they are still plotting for his life. You would think after two years, they might have just laid it to rest. After all, their charges were false. But after two years, they got the same plot. And that is, bring him down to Jerusalem, and what are they going to do? 
if you remember last week, same plot. They're going to hide out, and they're going to ambush Paul when he's on his way down to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, Festus protects Paul. I don't think he does it intentionally. I think Festus, frankly, just doesn't want to come back down to Jerusalem. And so he says, look, Paul's in Caesarea. If you guys want to have a hearing with this guy, I don't care. That's fine. We can do that. But you're coming to Caesarea. I'm not bringing him down to Jerusalem. So that's what happens next. The, the Jewish leadership, again, two years later, comes back to Caesarea for another hearing, not with Felix this time, but now with Governor Festus. In verse 7, we read, if you look at the text, it says, When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now that word offense right there is actually the same word for sin. What he's saying is, is I haven't sinned against the Jews, I haven't sinned against Rome, I haven't sinned against Caesar, I haven't sinned against the temple. All of these charges against him are false. In verse 9, Festus allows then Paul to weigh in on where he wants the trial to take place. And it says that he's doing this as a favor to the Jews, so it must mean that Festus believes that for whatever reason, Paul is going to want the, the trial to take place back in Jerusalem. Well, Paul doesn't want the trial to take place in Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows he's going to die there. Yeah. And so Paul says, look, you know, if, if, if I'm guilty of these things, then I can go to Jerusalem. But, but this, is, this, this, this court, or this, this issue belongs in Caesar's courts. And so he appeals then to Caesar. How did Paul get to Rome? Well, this is how. He appealed to Caesar. And so he was going to be sent in the last couple chapters of Acts all the way to the city of Rome. Verse, verse 10. Verse 10. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have committed no wrong. And as you yourself know very well, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had heard, uh, conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Now here Paul includes what you call conditional statements. A conditional statement is an if-then statement. If this is the case, then this ought to happen. He has two conditional statements in here if you caught them. The first one is, if I have done anything that uh, uh, deserves death, then what? I deserve to die. The second one is this, if the charges are false, then well, I, I cannot be found guilty of these things. I can't be turned over to them. Now listen, church, I can't say this clearly enough. Paul is not trying to wiggle his way out of sin. If he's saying, I committed the crime, then I will do the time. If I broke the law, if I went 60 and a 40, I'll pay the fine. 
If I am guilty of possession, I'll do the time. If I'm guilty of abusing a, a, a child, I'll go to jail. If I'm guilty of murder, I'll take the death penalty. Paul is not trying to get out of a crime. And you see, so often we think the persecution that comes against us is, uh, is, is legit persecution when in all reality we're just, trying to, we're just trying to not do the time for the crime that we committed. If I'm guilty, let me be guilty. But if I'm not, then let me go, is basically what he's saying. Now, Luke is the author of Acts. Who wrote Acts? Everybody? I just told you. Luke. There we go. Thank you. Somebody's confident this morning. Luke wrote Acts to who? Oh, here we go. Theophilus. This is most likely a legal document with the purpose of showing that Paul was innocent. And so that's the point of Acts chapter 25, is to show that Paul was innocent of these charges. Paul's boldness before the courts. Paul's, Paul's boldness before the courts uh, in Rome have to do with the fact... Paul's boldness in the, in the court of Rome have to do with the fact that he was innocent. Uh, the fact that he no, can, can say, look, I'm going to go to Caesar, has to do with the fact that he believes he is innocent. Now, check it out. You all with me? Yeah. Check it out. With all of this, with Paul's appeal to Caesar, Festus has a new problem. You might have caught it when I was reading. In order for Paul to go to Caesar, Festus needs to write a letter to Caesar indicating the charges against Paul. If Festus can't understand what the charges are, he's going to have a hard time sending him to Caesar. And so the next scene is kind of interesting. King Agrippa shows up. And Festa discusses his case with this man named Agrippa. Look at verse 13. It says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Everybody say, Agrippa. Agrippa. I want you to remember these names. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Anybody remember who he was? Let's go all the way back to that first Christmas Eve, when King Herod sought to kill the baby Jesus out of his pride. Well, this is his great-grandson, who is now standing before Jesus' own anointed. And we're going to see next week in the next chapter that Paul seeks to persuade Agrippa to become a Christian. What a turn of events. Bernice is Agrippa's sister. Some scholars believe that the two of them had an incestuous relationship. In verse 15, Festus lays out the case before Agrippa. Agrippa is a Roman-sponsored king of the Jews. And so he's going to be very helpful, Festus believes, 
in understanding what Paul is guilty of. So he lays out the charges before Agrippa and explains that the Jewish leaders came and they laid out their case against Paul, which means that they presented for me the charges against Paul as clearly as they could. But I've got some problems, he explains. First, we're a Roman court. We don't deal with their religious issues. Secondly, it's about the resurrection of this man named Jesus, which isn't a crime to believe. So in verse 17, he, he explain, we see all the problems. Verse 17, he says, it says that a hearing takes place. Uh, and, and there are these problems for poor Festus. Verse 18, they brought no charge of evils against Paul. Verse 19, he seems to be on trial for believing that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, which isn't illegal. Verse uh, ver verse 20, Festus is at a loss how to investigate these questions. And then verses 20 through, 22 through 27 is Festus formally explaining to Agrippa in front of Paul and all others the problems. In verse 25 it says, Paul has done nothing wrong to deserve death. In verse 26 it says, Festus has nothing to write to Nero about. In verse uh, uh, 26, he goes on to say, after we examine him, you and me, Agrippa, maybe together with all of your expertise, that I'll have something to write to Nero about. Verse 27 says it's unreasonable to send Paul to Nero without indicating the charges against him. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but by the end of the next chapter, in chapter 26, verse 32, Agrippa, who Festus was so hoping could come along and, and help me know what I should write to Nero. Agrippa says in verse 32 of chapter 26 that Paul should have been set free had he not appealed to, to Caesar. <laughs> he's, he's basically saying, sorry bro, this, is, this one's on you. What is the point of Acts chapter 25? Well, for you mathematicians, it comes after chapter 24 and before chapter 26, it's kind of sandwiched between these two chapters. Well, chapter 24 is about what? It's about Paul's boldness explaining the gospel to Felix. What's chapter 26 about? You don't know yet. Next week we're going to find out. It's about Paul's boldness in sharing the gospel to Agrippa. Sandwiched is between those two chapters is chapter 25. What's chapter 25 telling us? What it's telling us is this, is that Paul's life that was lived above reproach allowed him to speak the gospel in chapter 24 and to speak the gospel in chapter 26. Here, here's the point. I want to summarize it this way. Since we represent Jesus with our mouths, let us represent Jesus with our lives. Uh, I don't mean that we live perfect lives. I mean that we live above reproach. Listen to Paul's own exhortations as he later writes letters to the churches from jail. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Acts 20, 28. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. 
an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Titus 1.7 An overseer must be above reproach. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Yeah. Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 through, uh, uh, 14 and 15. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Or as Peter put it, he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Allow me to summarize. The biblical command is this. Live above reproach. The reasoning that I just gave you is this. Because you shine as lights in the world. So that no fault may be found in your ministry. Lest you be disqualified. That you proclaim... His excellencies. In other words, church, don't unsay with your life what you say with your tongue. This word reproach, it's a noun. And it means the expression of disapproval or disappointment in the English language. Meaning, if your life is examined... Your whole life is put on display for critique. It's saying don't do anything, don't live in any way that would bring disappointment to your life. Meaning you must, as a Christian, not only believe the right things and not only say the right things, but you must, as a Christian, represent Jesus rightly with your behavior. Oh, like I said, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. You know, James it says, confess your sins. Meaning, you, yeah, you have sinned, but confess them, church. Confess them. It means that there are no unconfessed, hidden, grievous, ongoing sins in your life that, if known, would discredit your voice. So why should we live above reproach? Let me give you two bad reasons. And then let me give you two good reasons. One, we do not live above reproach in order to earn favor with God. Let me say that again. We do not live above reproach in order to earn us some favor with God. There was a young boy that was abandoned by his family. He was tossed into the foster care system and went from one foster family to another. He was abused in the foster care system. His whole life was one of being traumatized. He was fighting in his schools. Finally, a loving family adopted this boy. Did they adopt him because of his good behavior? Did they adopt him because he was going to be easy to have in the house? 
No, they adopted him because they set their affections upon him. Even after he was adopted, he hid food in his room, afraid that he was going to starve. Even after he was adopted, for for months he kept his bags packed because he thought that he might have to move again. Even after he was adopted in public, he, he didn't represent the family in the way that some of the other kids did. It was clear that he hadn't been raised in the family, didn't act like his siblings. He was often disrespectful. He continued getting in fights at school. But let me ask you this question. Was he legitimately adopted into the family? Even before his behaviors began to change. Blair Lynn, in a recent book she wrote, she said, when a child is adopted, their legal status changes. But their own sense of themselves takes time to catch up. They must learn to trust that this family loves them, cares for them, and is committed to them for the long haul. No, church, we are not adopted into God's family because of our good behavior. We're not adopted into God's family because we are just so cuddly and easy to love. We were spiritual orphans, abused by our father, Satan. Living lives of wickedness, rebellion against God, hatred towards God. Our adoption is a legal change in which God says, I no longer am going to view you as one under my wrath, but I'm going to view you as Jesus Christ himself. We are justified. We're given the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is change at our conversion. But we don't instantaneously uh, arrive at sinless perfection. Yet we instantaneously have the favor of God all over us. It's one-way grace. Listen, Jesus paid your adoption fee as he hung on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He paid it all. And so we enter into salvation through looking away from our sin and looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus this morning, church. Trust that Jesus died for your sins and that you have forgiveness of your sins now and one day will be freed from sin in a new world as Jesus one day returns for you and for all who are in Him. That's the Gospel message. Believe that. Turn to that now. But don't believe that your behavior somehow earns God's favor. Uh, Living above reproach to earn God's favor is a bad reason to strive to live above reproach. Paul had a radical view of God's grace. He never once believed, as good as his life was, he never once believed that God ever accepted him even an ounce on his good behavior. Another bad reason to live above reproach, we do not live above reproach in order to earn favor with man. The night before Jesus died, he had one of his own friends walk out of the Last Supper with a decision to betray him. 
He, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Why? Why? I think it's because he had fear of man. He was living his three years with Jesus prior, above reproach, if you could say. If you could put it that way for Judas. He was living above reproach, but he was doing it to earn favor with man. And as soon as humanity turns against Jesus, what does Judas do? He says, well, hey, at the core, the reason I've even been following Jesus is to get approval with man. And so now that man's turning against Jesus, I'm just going to turn against Jesus as well. Listen, living above reproach to earn favor with man is always going to lead you away from Jesus. You will end up against Jesus. People pleasing will never lead you to pleasing God. Why? Well, some, some people try it, like Judas. And their heart is all about man's applause. But then others just give up on it. They're like, well, shoot, if, if, I, if my good behavior, if my living above reproach doesn't even help me at my job, if it doesn't get me a raise, if it doesn't get me a promotion, if it doesn't help me buy a house, if it doesn't help me in life, it doesn't, if, it, if it's not increasing my standing before man, then what is it good for? Well, as the song goes, absolutely nothing. And so we just give it up and we, and we just say, well, forget it. Forget it. If I'm not going to have man's approval, I'm not even going to try to live above reproach. But you see, the Christian thinks entirely different. For the Christian, for the Christian, we understand living above reproach as a life that, that just simply represents who Jesus is. But I wonder if the problem is that so often our message of Christianity often gets disconnected from our lives. And I wonder if for some of you it's even because of a, a warped understanding of the message. I mean, after all, we are saved by grace. And so it doesn't matter how I live, right? If my message is one of grace, well, then I can just do whatever I want to do. Because, and, and it's fine because it's a message of God's grace. And if I just go on in sin, it just tell, shows people how gracious God is for me. Well, Paul addressed this issue in, in the book of Romans. He said, should we just go on to sin to make grace abound? He said, certainly not. Like you're completely missing the point. This past week, uh, a friend of mine, his name is Chris, he was featured in World Magazine. And uh, in the magazine, it explains that over a 40-year period, two men said that a prominent Christian religious leader sexually assaulted them, and two others said that he had made unwanted sexual advances. And in Chris's interview with the magazine, he explained how yet uh, again, this prominent Christian leader had been grooming him for sexual exploitation. Yet another witness against this man. 
For the past number of years, we have seen Christian leaders exposed for scandalous behavior. They have been defamed. They have been fired. They have stepped down. They've been arrested. They've been sued for scandalous behavior. The survivors who have been bold enough to speak had exposed uh, their hypocrisy. And as many of you probably know, the result of so much of this is that many people have just abandoned the faith. Uh, We're living in an era where it feels like we could probably all name a friend who has walked away from Christianity and they would say it's because of these scandalous sort of stories as to why they've walked away. Well, I think the issue, not for all, but for many, the issue feels something like this. The, The very people that I learned doctrine from, the very people that I looked up to spiritually, the very people that taught me the gospel lived scandalous lives. And and so now I can't even trust what I've been taught. Now, it's easy for us to point fingers at the Christian leaders. But the question I want each one of us to ask, as Christian leaders, you might not have a platform, but you have influence. You bear the name of Jesus. The question I want us all to ask is, am I living above reproach? You see, we so often believe that if we can get the right kind of accountability around Christian leaders, that we could put an end to the hypocrisy. While at the same time, every day, ordinary, unknown, professing Christians live lives of hypocrisy. My point is simply this, and I want us to feel the weight of this. We will never do away with the hypocrisy of leaders while we tolerate hypocrisy in our own lives. Why is it that these guys get away with it? It's because we have all learned how to tolerate hypocrisy in our own lives. So what are two good reasons to live above reproach? Let me give them to you, then we'll close. Number one. Number one, living above reproach is not to lie about Jesus. Living above reproach is not to lie about who Jesus is. I recently joined the board of our local neighborhood association, and yesterday I went through this onboarding process uh, where they explained to all of the new board members uh, what it means to be part of this board. And in the onboarding process, they had this whole section on the ethical expectations of board members for the nonprofit. The first one was obey the law, like basic stuff like that, you know? And then they went on to explain that as a board member, you represent the board in every aspect of your life. And I thought to myself, shame on so many of us who represent Jesus and don't take it that seriously. How much more so should those of us who represent Jesus live ethical lives, live moral lives, live lives above reproach so that we don't not bring down the name of the neighborhood association 
as important as that is, but so we don't bring down the name of Jesus. We live lives above reproach so that we do not lie about Jesus. Look, Paul observed all of the laws. This is what we see in chapter 25 laid out. It's what we've seen historically in the last couple chapters. Even though some of the laws of Israel were goofy. You know, these purification things. Even though some of the laws of Israel no longer agreed with Paul's theology, he still went through seven days of purification. He still did not take a Gentile into the temple because that was their law, as strange as it was. The basic principle we see here is simply this, is that Paul observed the laws of man as long as they did not violate the laws of God. Now, it's possible that today there could be some laws that would require you to sin against God. Well, who do we obey in that case? God, not man. It's possible today that there are some laws uh, which would prevent you from obeying God. If that was the case, who do we obey? God or man. But otherwise, we should follow the law of man. That is the basic premise of Paul's life played out and displayed in Acts chapter 25. But that leads to my second good reason. And you've got to understand this. Living above reproach is to have power in your preaching. Meaning that that's the point. Why was it that Paul went through the purification process? Why was it that he, that he uh, sought to honor all of the customs of the temple? It's because he didn't want to do anything that would mar his testimony and his voice and his ability to represent Jesus. If, if you are in a Muslim nation and you're not allowed to eat pork, That might be goofy, but stop eating bacon so that you might have a voice to represent Jesus among them. If you were to live in a world, this one particularly strikes me, if you were to live in a world that banned coffee, stop drinking coffee because you want more so to represent Jesus. Are you tracking with me? This is the way Paul thought. It wasn't because Uh, He loved the country so much. We don't follow the laws of the nation because we love all the laws. We don't follow the laws of the nation because we're Christian nationalists. We follow the laws of the nation because we love Jesus. And we just want the ability to have power in our preaching as we represent Jesus. Now, even if there are certain things that are legal in your nation, for instance, today it's legal to look at pornography. It's legal to destroy your body through food. It's legal to be lazy. Well, even in these areas where it's legal to sin, we still must live above reproach. Are you with me? Because at the end of the day, we're showing that we're operating as citizens of two kingdoms. And yes, your kingdom says that I can have this, but my kingdom says that I cannot, and I've got to obey my Lord. We live our lives, church, above reproach. That's the idea here. 
Now, living a life of above reproach did not grant Paul any favor before man. He still spent the rest of his life, for the most part, in jail and ended up beheaded in about eight years from now. It did not give Paul any freedom in this world. What did living above reproach give Paul? It gave him power in his preaching. That's what he wanted. Imagine if there was an offense that could have been proven. Imagine if he slipped up with the whole temple thing and took a Gentile in. Well, he would have lost his ability to preach the gospel because now he's dealing with an actual charge. Back to my story about the boy who was adopted. Over time, that boy grew in love with that family. Over time, he began, began to, to accept that family's love for him. He began to realize that this family is committed to me and is not going anywhere, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm here because they love me. And over time, that boy began to rightly represent the family in public because he loved the family. You see, as a newly adopted child takes time to learn to give and receive love, a new Christian in the family of God might take a minute to learn that God loves, cares, and is committed to them no matter what. And as they learn that, they fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ. And as they fall in love with Jesus Christ, they just want to live more like Jesus Christ. See, church, I'm calling you to live above reproach, not out of fear, not out of legalism, not out of some man-made standards. I'm asking you to live above reproach out of your love for Jesus. When we see Jesus, what do we see? But we see the perfection of beauty. We see the holiest of holy. We see the radiance of glory. We see the light of the world. We see the good shepherd. We see the bread of life. We see the prince of peace. We see the power and wisdom of God. We see the pearl of great price. We see the lily of the valley. We see the rose of Sharon. This is the Jesus who rescued a woman that was caught in adultery. Yet He never once lusted after her. This is the Jesus. This is the Jesus whose friends misunderstood Him who even at the Last Supper ended up with a debate about who's going to be the greatest. Yet He bent down and washed His disciples' feet. This is the Jesus who, when He showed up after being late, uh, uh, when, when Mary and Martha were concerned about their brother Lazarus who was dying, and He showed up and was rebuked by Martha for His tardiness. He raised Lazarus from the dead anyway. This is the Jesus 
who after his resurrection looked Peter in the face. Remember Peter who denied Jesus publicly three times? And he looked Peter in the face and he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. This is the Jesus who, when we fall in love with him, we, we just want to live above reproach. What is our motivation? It's love for Christ. When you're privately tempted towards sin, what is your motivation to fight against that temptation? It's, I just want to be like Jesus. I don't want to lie to the world about who Jesus is. When people are testing your temper and you're like, oh my goodness, I just want to wrap my hands around this person's neck right now. And you don't. Why? It's because you want to be more like Jesus. You just want to be like the one who you love. If we are constantly falling into sin, the issue is an issue of our love. It's an issue of our affections. Who do you love? Who do you love? When we fall in love with Jesus, we live lives above reproach. I refuse to lust because I want to be more like Jesus. I refuse to be proud because I want to be more like Jesus. I refuse to be self-centered because I want to be more like Jesus. Do you love him, church? Do you love him? Does anybody love Jesus? Then yes, like Peter, take the message. Feed his sheep. But church, don't unsay with your life what you have said with your tongue. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for his perfection, for his beauty, for his example. God, I thank you for the fact that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have renewed our desires and you have gifted us with the ability to love Jesus. Grow us in our love for Christ so that we might live lives above reproach in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.